0: another episode of Just Jerry Live, Plotting Perspectives in Church Life with Todd Bryant
1: and Jeff Short.
0: How are you this morning, sir?
1: I'm doing pretty well. I've just been spending some time reflecting on all the wealth and fame that Just Jerry Live has brought into both of our lives and uh, Just, uh, you know, how much more enriched that we are.
0: I never thought we would make it this far in life that we would be the star co-hosts of a nationally or really worldwide podcast.
1: It's worldwide. I mean, I'm sure we probably have a listenership in China. I mean, we've probably somehow gotten past the censors and... I'm sure we have a following there.
0: Well, if there's anything that they're smuggling in, I can't imagine why it would not be this particular podcast right here.
1: That's a great point.
0: Absolutely. All right. So we are obviously, this is, I think, our fourth episode where we are going through this book. And just for those that have been following us, it, it may seem slow over the next several episodes. We plan to knock this thing out, and it is going to get fast quick. We're going to start covering several chapters at a time. We don't want to spend six months doing this. But chapter three was so critical that we did spend one week on it. I think that is important, and I'm certain that you agree there, because that's really the foundation for the book, the hermeneutic right. that he is going to use in approaching you know, the Bible. And, and let me also say this. I don't know that we mentioned this last time, but I would honestly believe that his hermeneutic on this subject is probably different than his hermeneutic on everything else in the Bible.
1: I'd say that's probably right.
0: Okay. So anyway, we are going through The Power of His Reign. It is An Easy Introduction to Amillennialism by Jonathan Ammon. We're going to cover chapters four and five today. The next time we hope to cover four or five chapters, and then we, we should be through with this. In another few episodes. So you have read chapters four and five. Is that correct?
1: That is correct.
0: Have we talked about this at all?
1: (laughs) No, we haven't.
0: No, and it's not because I haven't wanted to. So we're, we're actually giving fresh thoughts here. Now, one of the things that he has said that he wanted to do, and he brings this out in this section, he wants to go to the simplest easiest passage and build his case from those passages, interpret the Bible from those passages that he believes is clear. Is that correct? Uh, Yes. And he did complain, and I think rightly so, about people running straight to Revelation 20 and then back interpreting, if that's a word, everything they read in the Bible just based on that chapter. I would agree that's a bad thing to do. I fear that He isn't really far from that, though, in going to Luke 20 to start. Right. I'm going to make the case that, and I know we've already said this, you ought to go to Genesis chapter 1 to start. (laughs) Now, let me go ahead and throw this out there. I obviously am two years into exposition, uh, or the exposition of the book of Luke. I am in chapter 23 currently, and... I see this as just a a bad approach to chapter 20, and there's several reasons for that. We haven't gotten into the, the subject, but let me say Luke actually mentions the kingdom quite a number of times, and the word kingdom itself is used 45 times in the book of Luke. It begins with Gabriel's words to Mary that Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Obviously. That is not in any way reinterpreting the Old Testament. The next time you see it, the devil takes him up into the mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the world. Still literal kingdoms saying that he would give him those kingdoms. So the kingdom early on in Luke is not any different than the kingdom that you see in the Old Testament. And perhaps... The most problematic thing that I see with him beginning with this quote-unquote clear, simple passage in chapter 20 is that if he will just back up a little bit, a few verses into chapter 19, one chapter earlier, Jesus tells the apostles, the, the disciples, the parable of the ten minas, and here's the reason he tells it, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Right, And he gives this parable about how he is going to go away and receive the kingdom. In other words, he is going to go to the father, just like someone in the Roman Empire would go to Rome to be named king. And then that person would return and implement their kingdom. And Jesus is actually explaining that very thing. He's going to go away to the father and then. Down the road, sometimes he's going to turn and he is going to implement or or begin his kingdom. And that is actually a very clear, simple parable one chapter earlier. So he actually jumps over all of that and gets to chapter 20 to begin. And I'm just going to say, I think that's a bad approach. He, it's probably not fair that I've been preaching through Luke, but, you know, he brought Luke 20 up, not me. And I hate to do all the talking, but I've obviously got a lot invested in the gospel of Luke. So,
1: Well, I figured this chapter on Luke, I probably would just uh, sit back and let you go because I knew you'd be ready to talk about it.
0: Well, I just, I just think he's jumping way past everything that's already been said about the kingdom. Luke has long since laid a foundation for the kingdom before chapter 20. And chapter 20 is not reinterpreting everything Luke has said up to that point. It's
1: just, yeah, absolutely.
0: A, it's just a bad place to start. It's certainly not reinterpreting everything the Bible has said up to that point. But I don't see any difference in starting with Revelation 20 and starting with Luke 20.
1: It's, it's not a lot different.
0: Okay, so he deals with this passage where the Sadducees come to Jesus And, you know, the Sadducees obviously were that group that denied that there is a resurrection. And they tell Jesus the story about a man whose brother died and the widow takes up the next brother or the man who died who was married to this woman. And the the widow's brother marries her and they go all the way through seven brothers. And they're trying to disprove that there is a resurrection. They're trying to make the resurrection look silly. And, And so they ask this question. Therefore, whose wife will the woman be, you know, in the resurrection for seven had her as wife. Is this a passage that is about the intricacies of biblical prophecy?
1: No, it's not. It's actually just as you said there, it's a question about the resurrection. And the Sadducees think that they're being clever and that they have come up with this scenario that makes the idea of a bodily resurrection. To just be absurd. And so that's what they're posing to Jesus here. This instance of of extreme leveret marriage where you have a woman that has ended up being married to seven brothers. And, you know, oh, well, you know, whose wife is she going to be now? The approach that he takes here and you've already been touching on it. But, you know, number one, Jesus is not teaching here about the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom. He's not teaching about the prophetic scheme that as it applies to the end times, they're talking about the issue of bodily resurrection. And that's just in the that's just in the context. So I don't I don't know why that you would take this passage. In other words, I don't understand the hermeneutic as to why biblically you would take this passage as a control passage to go back and to reinterpret everything else. In a in a way, it would be like turning over to John three sixteen and reading John three sixteen, and then you're going to use that verse as a control passage to inter, to reinterpret everything about the atonement and make it fit into that. And obviously, you're going to end up with error when you do that.
0: Absolutely, and obviously, there are people out there that do that. Now, there was a little subtle thing that I noticed in. His his primary translation in this book is the English Standard Version and oddly enough he chose in this second section that he quotes to shift over to the NIV. Now I'm not knocking the NIV, I'm not advocating the ESV. That just happens to be a fact. You know, that's what he's using here. Right. And it is interesting that in verse thirty seven, you know, it says, But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. He he likes the wording of it. I would, I would appear or I would, you know, think that verse is the reason he switched to the NIV because the, the ESV actually words it, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. So the ESV is actually clearer here that the subject matter is still about whether there is a resurrection or not. The NIV right. masks that just a little bit. And and I think that benefits him in getting where he wanted to be. It is odd to me that he changed translations mid you know mid passage in order to use one that you know fit his position just a little bit. I was a little bit disappointed about that.
1: Yeah, I noticed that too. So on page twenty six, which this is right at the end of this little short chapter, this is uh, down toward the bottom. He says, "I believe this passage," and he's talking about the the Luke twenty passage. I believe this passage is clear, simple and foundational for our view of the end times and that Jesus teaching here can be taken at face value. Christ reigns now in this imperfect age and he will reign in the age to come. Well, again, this gets back. Why this verse? You know what biblically tells us that this is a control passage for all prophecy of Scripture and. It just, it just goes to show what we talked about in chapter three and the hermeneutical approach. And this is obviously going to be the foundational reason uh, why we're going to disagree when we look at different passages because of this approach of interpretation. So I actually believe in a continuity of the Old Testament to the New Testament. I, I believe in a, a progressive revelation and there's nothing biblically that demands this passage is the passage by which you interpret all end-time prophecy. It's a strange choice to me, but it also sets up what he's going to spend the next few chapters on, and that is talking about the two-age model. And the two-age model is obviously foundational framework for amillennialism. It's sometimes referred to as the already-not-yet or, you know, this age and, and that age to come. And he mentions, back up just a little bit above this quote, it's still on page 26, Premillennialism asserts that after the resurrection, but before the eternal state, Jesus will reign on the earth, and despite what is taught here, that even after the resurrection of the dead, there will be marriage. There will be a mixture of worthy and unworthy men who revolt against Christ's earthly rule before the end. There will be death, and there will be natural men rather than resurrected men on the earth. Now, I'm just going to say, giving the benefit of the doubt, maybe he does not really understand premillennialism, but that's that's not exactly it, what he's saying in that paragraph. And the second problem with that is that's not what Luke 20 is about. When Jesus talks about Luke 20, if you read it in context, he's talking about those who are resurrected. He's not talking about natural bodies. He's talking about those who are resurrected. There's no marriage After that you have been resurrected. This is a critique oftentimes of the premillennial view that would have a millennial kingdom on earth with uh, Jesus reigning from David's throne in Jerusalem because they say, well, there will be a, that would result in a mixture of resurrected people and people in their natural bodies. And it's kind of funny that he uses this passage because really, in a way, he's doing a similar thing to what the Sadducees were doing to Jesus. They're trying to make a scenario that sounds absurd and ridiculous and say, well, that that's just silly. That just can't be. But there's nothing in the text that would say, why can't there be men in resurrected bodies, glorified bodies on Earth and men in natural bodies at the same time? And in fact, When you look at places like Isaiah chapter 65, that's exactly what those passages are telling us will happen. So I just don't I I think he's failed to make his case here.
0: Not to mention Jesus, after his resurrection for 40 days, lived among natural men and, you know,
1: ate with them,
0: with them, talked with them.
1: They touched him, John says. Absolutely. They they, can't, you know. They saw him with their eyes, heard him with their ears, touched him with their hands, ate with him, drank with him. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, he does say this passage in Luke clarifies the end times. And I'm like, this is just not about that. And I think he probably really does know that this is clear and simple teaching from Jesus, which is another thing that he stresses so much. The section you read, I believe this passage is clear, simple and foundational. And Listen, I'm not, again, advocating jumping to Revelation chapter 20, but if anything is clear, Revelation 20 is far more clear than Luke 20. Right. As far as what he's saying, because Luke 20 simply does not say Christ reigns now in this imperfect age and he will reign in the age to come. That is not in any way even hinted to. Right. All, right. all right. So he goes on in chapter five. And I'm pushing you because uh, we, we just don't want to spend years in this book. Um, <laughs> You're good. Yeah. Chapter five, Jesus end time parables. And he runs through all of these parables. And this is going to be quite a bit of interpretation by him that I don't think is necessarily there. And he goes through the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven the treasure and the pearl and the parable of the dragnet that's the way he has listed them all here and he begins with the parable of the weeds now i know that you preached through mark not too long ago he's actually right. he's actually using matthew but you spent a good bit of time on these parables let me say this before i give you the the mic here he continues to say that this parable teaches that the kingdom arrives first. And then he says, the kingdom has arrived in our day, the arrival of the kingdom. And I'm just going to say, I just don't see that in this parable at all. He's adding that point. Am I wrong?
1: You're, no, you're right. So when it comes to the parables, and particularly the kingdom parables, obviously there's there's consistency between the kingdom parables. If if these parables are saying something about what the kingdom is like, then there's there's some consistency across them. So there's two issues that I think you have to have in mind when interpreting the kingdom parables. And first of all is what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom is at hand and what is the mystery of the kingdom which is what these parables are revealing to those who have faith, to those who have, more will be given. So when Jesus and, and John, actually John first, began to preach the kingdom is at hand. Now, all meals typically interpret that to mean the kingdom is here. That's a little bit inconsistent because it's, you know, to some, it's it, it's Christ's death on the cross that brought the kingdom. It's his resurrection. When, you know, when exactly did the kingdom come? And again, um,
0: by the way, let me express, Jesus says, You know, the kingdom is is here in their minds early on in Luke. But in Luke 19, he's got this parable explaining that the kingdom is going to be delayed.
1: Well, absolutely. So (laughs) the kingdom is at hand. And of course, the term just means it's near and, and it is near because the king is there. And if if they had received him as their Messiah and king, the kingdom would have come, would have been established. But they did not receive him. In fact, they rejected him. And that's what you'll notice as you read through the Gospels is after they have rejected him, he no longer says the kingdom is at hand. He says it's at hand up to a point. And then he before his resurrection, he no longer says it's at hand. And that's important because they have rejected him. So just like when Jesus, sometimes we refer to it as the triumphal entry, which really is probably a very poor term because that's not what it is. He enters into Jerusalem and they're putting down the palm branches and they're crying out, you know, Hosea unto the son of David. And the, the key to understand there is that they're calling that. And in just a few days, they're going to call for him to be crucified. And so Jesus does not receive their reception of him as king. He does not receive it. He is the stone that the builders refused that became the head of the corner. So in other words, this all had to happen. And back to what you were saying about Luke 19, which is a great point. The mystery of the kingdom is the fact that the kingdom does not come with his first coming, but that the kingdom comes with his second coming.
0: Absolutely. And by the way, the, the later parables in Matthew, like, you know, in Matthew 25, there are some parables. And then Jesus begins to talk about the final judgment there in Matthew 25:31, And he's looking to the future. When the king will say, come, you who are blessed, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he's clearly talking about when he comes the second time, that that is when the kingdom will be inherited. And by the way, Paul continues that that language. You know, First Corinthians six, nine. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Galatians five twenty one. I warned you before those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, this person, you know, who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So once Jesus stops speaking about the nearness of the kingdom, it shifts back to the future and even the writings of Paul continue to echo that future inheritance of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about in chapter 25 of Matthew after these things that he's quoting. And by the way, those passages are, quote unquote, clear and simple. There's, right. no, there's no way to misinterpret the fact that the inheritance of the kingdom is future in our day. So, yeah, I, I think he's just adding in some things in these parables that aren't there. But the continual thing that he is adding is that the kingdom is here and Christ is ruling over his kingdom. Not a one of these parables say anything like that.
1: Well, so let's, and I agree, and you pointed out how he starts out by saying in this parable, the kingdom has arrived. Well, and he says that, you know, in these kingdom parables, none none of these parables say that the kingdom has arrived. But if we think about what we've been talking about contextually with the kingdom being at hand and or near and the mystery of the kingdom being that there is a delay, kingdom is actually not coming with the first coming. And I think that fact is also reflected in the question of the disciples in you know Acts chapter one, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. so what is consistent with these parables and another misinterpretation is to take these parables, especially the sowing of the wheat and the parable of the mustard seed. he's focusing on the growing season, and he's saying this parable or you know this parable is This parable means that kingdom is here and it's slowly growing and spreading until the time that Jesus returns, which is actually not the message of the kingdom parables. But in all, what is consistent in all of these parables is that there's an interval of time. See, there's a time between when a seed is sown and when the harvest is taken. There's a time that elapses between those. That's not the sowing of the seed. You don't immediately reap the harvest. And that is consistent with what the mystery of the kingdom is and the fact that there will be a delay. And just like he was talking about with Luke chapter 19. So I I do believe that that's a a misinterpretation that that the kingdom has arrived and it's slowly growing and slowly spreading until it's going to cover the the whole earth. And then, you know, Christ is is going to return.
0: Absolutely. And if, if you'll recall, we talked about Daniel chapter two. Earlier, I don't know which one it was in now, but Daniel chapter two, the Lord is going to st- establish his kingdom himself, and it's going to be very quick. Jesus actually right. talks about that very thing in Luke, if he'll just keep reading. And he says that the Lord is going to return and establish his kingdom like the lightning flashes across the sky very right. quickly. So, You know, the things that are clear, and I, and I'm only pressing that because that's a point that he continues to press. The things that are actually clear are different from the way that he is interpreting them. And, and and I'll say again, he is allowing his position on millennialism to interpret some of the things that he's saying. Jesus never in the parable says the kingdom has arrived and I will reign during this age. And then I will return and set up the eternal ages. That is never said in the parable. Now, all of us take a little bit of baggage into the parables because of our position and interpret them thusly. I'm sure that's the case. I would not doubt that. I'm just saying he's he's actually reading between the lines just a little bit more than he needs to. And and again, are these really those clear and simple passages that he's he's spoken about?
1: Well, you know, these these passages are in a progress of revelation. They're continuing the revelation, you know, and that that really is key and foundational is Jesus. When Jesus comes, is he correcting or reinterpreting prior revelation or is he continuing that revelation to completion? Of course, I believe that he's continuing and that that he comes in a certain time in the canonical timeline and that he is progressing the revelation to completion, which obviously was completed through his apostles after him.
0: Well, you know, earlier in in one of the uh, episodes, I gave the example of the book of Genesis, how, you know, we're told in the book of Genesis in chapter three that Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent. And by the end of the book of Genesis, we have come so far as to realize he'll come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Judah. And that's just sort of a microcosm for how the Bible itself Works. The kingdom is promised. Jesus is the the new and better Adam. He's going to reign over the world the way Adam never was able to. And Jesus is not reinterpreting that during his ministry. And it certainly doesn't seem that way in light of the fact that Paul continues to talk about the kingdom as future, and the book of Revelation actually explains how the kingdom will be established. it Jesus is not reinterpreting and saying something completely different. And I would again argue that though the system of amillennialism is simple as far as its definition is concerned, the way that he is interpreting these parables is not in any way simple. And the idea that these parables have multiple meanings is just not the norm for parables. Most every book that I've read about parables admits parables generally have one point and right. And most of the time they're revealed near the end of the parable. He says in the last paragraph of chapter five, Jesus's parables were rich with meaning. They were simple and memorable. Each contained a simple message yet gave a wealth of information and I say, that's just not the nature of parables. If right. If we're going to interpret parables as having a wealth of information, we're going to start making everything in there to be some type of type or sign. And we have really no justification for that. The point of the parables is there is going to be a delay in the kingdom. And that's something that the Jews in the Old Testament did not see. And even the disciples struggled with it. Right. You got anything else on those two chapters?
1: No, I don't think so. I think we pretty well covered it.
0: And so we hope on the next uh, episode to cover four chapters when Jesus is talking about the two ages. And obviously we're not saying everything that could be said about this book. We'd be here all year if we did. And we do hope to continue releasing these pretty close together uh, so that we can get through this quickly for those that are interested. So this is Just Jerry Live signing off for the day. Hope you all have a good one.